You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because you have to think about something when you're stuck driving through a string of red lights. I'm Rekka. I write science fiction and fantasy as R.J. Theodore. I'm Alex Rowland. I'm Rowena Miller. And I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. This is Episode 9, Picking at the Ties that Bind. Subtitle, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, and now you can pick your family. <laughs> introductions are in order hello. i believe well, hello welcome welcome to the glamorous uh <laughs> guest of the week rj theodore uh hello Rekka. thank you for having me this is awesome thank you for joining us uh would you like to introduce yourself and tell us uh what you write i believe that you had a book come out recently tell us all about that as well Yes, somewhat recently. I uh, am the author of the Peridot Shift series, of which there are two books. Flotsam came out in March of 2018, and Salvage came out September 3rd of this year. And um, actually, based on the air date estimate that you gave me, I think I'm about to have my little self-published novella in the same world come out in a week or so, which is called Hunger and the Green. Excellent. And Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, Peridot is uh, definitely an exercise in world building. It is a completely busted up planet. Uh, 75 generations before the first novel begins, uh, the deities in deifying themselves broke the planet into uh, thousands of shards and they are all floating. So I don't even have a globe. I hate it when that happens. Hey, you know, they, they, you know, it wasn't what they were going for, but they decided, you know, as our first act, we're just going to honor it and go with it. (laughs) That sounds excellent. And I I feel like once we're we're talking books out, it's worth noting yet again that Alex um, recently had a book out. Correct. Yes, thank you, Rowena. Uh, Choir of Lies came out just recently. If you haven't had a chance to pick it up, I highly recommend that you go do so. Uh, it is also real deep on the world building bullshit, <laughs> as you might imagine. Uh, it's a book about the power of stories and community building and tulip mania and recovery from grief and trauma and like hope and all that good stuff. So uh, check it out. And I believe that Marshall Ryan Moresca is having a book come out as well. Everyone has books out. Wonderful. Yes. My next book is Shield of the People. It comes out October 28th. It's the second in my Meridane Elite series and also the 10th in all the my Meridane books all together. This one is, of course, filled with all sorts of crazy world building things, including elections and suffragettes and nice. department stores and fancy parties and kissing and swords and shields <laughs> everything you're saying is just making me want to buy it more thank you so much no detail is too mundane <laughs> please pre-order please pre-order pre please pre-order Rekka's book please order my books uh give us your money uh, <laughs> and if you have no money, I will accept co- going to your library and begging and banging on the desk yep. for very loudly in the library yep. for these yeah, titles. Getting libraries good. to buy it also counts. Uh, yep. So today we are going to be talking about family and family structures and found families and building families and a little bit about probably community building as well. 
where do we start with such a topic as this? Why family? Okay. Does anyone have an answer? <laughs> well, I, I think we had kind of hit the point in, in developing, you know, talking about our world. We've, you know, got some cultures started. And I think, you know, if we start thinking about where does culture come out of and how does community and society come out of, you've got this, like, how far back can you trace it? And at some point, family crops up as something that, that is important to just about any culture in one way or another. Um, but as soon as you hit why family, you kind of have to start asking, like, what family? <laughs> What exactly. what is family? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> also, I think the family unit and how you define the family unit in your cultures and your worlds is a microcosm of how your culture operates in a smaller sense or in a large sense or, or however you define it. Those things become a key aspect mm. of how your culture operates. Well, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> cool episode, everybody. Thanks for coming. <laughs> All right, we're done. Thank you. Good night. No, but I'm, one thing that occurs to me is like every species that has any hope of going to continue itself in the most like heteronormative way, I mean, is going to have some draw toward another being. And at some point, you know, you've got two rabbits, you've got two seals, you've got the whole Noah's Ark of twos. Mm. And as I said, heteronormative. But um, I feel like on some level, we are evolutionarily inclined to go find a friend. Yes. I mean, both as like a pair bonding kind of thing to continue the species, but also like humans are social creatures, right? Like we like hanging out in groups. We like having a tribe beyond just the person we're reproducing with. Um, right. Yes. Like we, and we, that benefits everybody because that's how you build civilizations, right? Like if you are trying to feed yourself and your children, you're going to be spending all of your time doing that. But once you start getting together in groups as families or tribes or as you get larger and larger villages and cities, then you get like specialization of labor. Uh, and it makes it easier for more people to survive on less effort. And if we're going to kind of hit up the concept of, you know, how do you, how do other species have social structures that work for them? I'm, I apologize. I'm a huge primatology nerd. I think primates are just the coolest. Um, but it's really fascinating because almost every primate has a different social structure. And almost all those social structures are familial yeah. in one way or another. And whether it is um, a pair bond or it's like, you know, two males and one female, which is totally the way that um, some little little critters do it. Um, or it's a huge multi-generational family all living together. Um, one thing that kind of fascinates me is how much of it is based upon environmental pressure. So, for example, you have these huge herds of baboons that are just multi-generational, huge branches of family living on the plains, and that works because it's the plains. And you have, like, orangutans who are arboreal and are pretty much solitary except when they have offspring. And it's mm -hmm. like the pressure mm -hmm. of environment, I think, defines sometimes how family works, too, if we then translate that into, like, human people and what does your environment look like um, and how have you changed your environment too but um, you know we think family often in the western uh, kind of canon as being the nuclear family and that is not always the case and a lot of that is environmental um, 
like we think of American history and the frontier and, and you take your family and move west or that's like your little nuclear pod of family. Like that's not normal for a lot of places in the world. So mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. what is family, mm-hmm. I think what is environment kind of goes hand in hand with that. So uh, Marshall, Ryan, Mareska, uh, we have a, a question here. Where are the large extended families in fantasy fiction? And I think that you have a... I'm going to have to say it. Well, in my book... <laughs> you could do a weirder voice than that, I feel. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I just listened to the last episode. You, I know you can lean into <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. All right. Well, my, in my book... book. <laughs> All right. Oh, we did a dual-level voice there. So in the Meridian Contabulary books, when I first wrote the first draft of A Murder of Mages, I had Minox as this loner character who lived in an apartment by himself. But I had this whole thread of him coming from a whole long line of family in the constabulary and in that draft things were not quite working right i realized i needed to see that larger family because if he has these deep roots in the constabulary where are they so i massively rewrote so many of his scenes to have him living in the large house with all of his extended family so he's got his aunts and uncles and his mother and his cousins and a grandmother all under the same roof and I changed one of the characters who was just somebody else he worked with to being one of his mm. cousins. And I added his sister into being a more key character within the whole story. So much expanded from that. So many different interesting dynamics then presented themselves. Mm. And it was fun because I could still keep him being this sort of asocial loner character. But now within this larger dynamic of the greater family. Yes. Well, you can define yeah. that kind of like in contrast, right? Like suddenly there's something to actually put him in and have him play that character against an expectation that exists right yeah yeah and it's super interesting to to do that again because like you say that he has all of these dynamics with the other characters around him like you have uh when you have a big extended uh birth family like that like people that you have known for literally your whole life that comes with all sorts of like history and emotional baggage uh and really deep stuff that you can dig into uh but let's talk more about the world building specifically so when we talk about families like we, like obviously the the most obvious um bond that we have is genetic relationships right so like what binds a family together besides just genetic relationships what are we talking about specifically so I think you have elements of um, geography as well, um, if that kind of makes sense, that do people actually live near each other? Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, historically, you would often have um, families living under the same roof or um, a kid gets married and moves out, but they literally move like to the farm next door. So I think that the idea of like geographic um, proximity becomes important for world building and mm-hmm. families in terms of who is important to your family and how. And depending on the technology in your world, of course, the further um, you separate your family members, like how do they stay in touch? And if necessitate, if your world necessitates that they move farther apart, does that mean that the, the genetic family starts to become less important? And um, so if you have, say, a very... Um, movement-based, you know, uh, economy, uh, traders, sailors, these sorts of things, then you have a whole segment of your society that very rarely sees the people that raised them. Yes. 
and I'm going to real quick uh, jump down a little bit further in our dot points because I think that uh, as we continue, uh, having some academic terms might be useful. I have a couple of anthropology terms for you. Uh, there's emic versus etic, which is the first one. Uh, emic means within the group, basically, and this is used for, usually it's used when we're talking about a group. So an emic study of the group is someone from the group doing a study about their own people and you get, uh, or like writing a paper or an like academic uh, research project um, versus edic, which is someone from the out group looking at a different group and trying to uh, make deductions about this. This would be like, for example, uh, someone from North America uh, describing what Christmas is. Uh, versus an alien from Mars describing what Christmas is. So obviously, like, you get two different uh, perspectives on it. The alien from Mars is going to talk about kind of surface level stuff, uh, Christmas trees and giving presents and so forth. But the emic description is also going to include a much more deeper, visceral kind of emotional uh, description of what is happening. And that is things like the uh, frustration of having to deal with family at Christmas or trying to buy presents for everybody and uh, the the more complex stuff that takes place related to emic and emic then brings us back to, sorry for the <laughs> for the tangent uh, but that brings us then to things like endogamy versus exogamy so endogamy is when you marry someone within your group this is related to the emic description uh, and exogamy is when you leave your group to marry into a different group this doesn't mean within a family but it means within a a cultural group versus like within someone from within your village marrying someone else from within your village versus going several villages away to find a spouse. Uh, so, you know, and there are there are different levels of this as well. Um, but just as we are talking about like people moving from um, one house to another as they get married, um, I thought it might be useful to have that. And now I have completely forgotten why. <laughs> I was talking right. about uh, traveling. Well, no, I think it, I think it, I think it, it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense That's within right. the context yes. of, of how, you know, what is proximity to your family? And if you think about a low technology society um, that practices um, marriage that you must leave for, that means leaving a family mm. unit and essentially joining a new one or forming a new one. Um, so I think that that, that is definitely something to keep in mind in terms of building, um, you know, not just world building, but in terms of how that affects characters' impressions of, of what family is to them. Is family lifelong or is family only for part of your life? And then you have to shift gears on what your family is. The other thing that that makes me think of is, um, you know, in our current North American standard uh, process of going through life, you have um, different schools that you go to, and then you have fellow students mm -hmm. that you bond with. Then you leave all of them and go to college and have a new set of people that not only do you um, go to class with, you also potentially live in close proximity to closer than before. And then you leave college again and you have, uh, you know, workplace relationships, which you may have had smaller ones um, before. And now you're entering like what you think of as a more long term, you know, co-worker relationship. And then there might be, you know, romantic partners and then 
um, you know, relationships of various experiences through those. And so these are little chapters that you almost expect to begin and close and then begin and close and then begin and close and then you're headed towards something and you think it's going to be the final final form that you will take <laughs> and then that may not even be true but it's um it's just interesting to think of okay you you grow up in this village and then you you move 10 miles away and you never see your family again um because it's just so far mm-hmm. and um and we sort of do that now but i think we always typically we have like an anchor of what we call our family and everything else is relationships and friendships but we don't really think of it as new families um but in my experience a lot of us have closer bonds with some of these different groups that we go through than we do with our genetic families and that's always something that really interests me uh in my writing i want to explore throwing people together who have either like geographical relationships or genetic relationships or just common interests that they work together toward or common beliefs or just a a system of trust that they share and I really enjoy putting these people together sometimes they don't seem like they should match and then figuring out how to make them turn into a well-oiled machine together for plot reasons but also because I just really enjoy the relationships between people and taking people who in theory might not belong together and and making sure that by the end they do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. love that so like for me um a major um i guess choose versus presume moment in thinking about building family is how do you address the challenge of children and i think that there are a lot of different challenges that family is something that we used to address but i feel like one of the most fundamental ones is offspring because human offspring are like ridiculously helpless like there is no way that human offspring are going to survive unless they have some kind of nurturing unit around them um and so i think it's kind of interesting because a lot of um fantasy societies in particular that that choose to kind of break out of traditional nuclear family or traditional kind of patriarchal modes ends up being this kind of accusation of like, but it's not realistic. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because the biological burden of having kids has typically historically been on women. And, and to some extent, like, well, you know, unless you were going to develop something else in a fantasy world that circumvents reproductive biology, it's kind of there. But that doesn't mean that we have to fall into those same modes of thinking about it that I've just kind of been presumed to be like, well, this is realistic. Um, so I think that's one kind of interesting place to play with a little bit. Like, how does a, a society that sort of challenges traditional patriarchal or nuclear family modes deal with the children challenge? It's it's definitely one of those ones where if you, no matter how conscious you're being of the decisions you're making in your world building, this is one that's really hard not to default to mm-hmm. um, the family unit depending on you know the the child's survival depending on the parents staying with them the parents staying together you know like that the not only the mother must be present but there must be a father figure and it's it rarely works out that way and and we all 
you know, we're still here. We're doing our best to blow up the planet, but we're all still here right now. <laughs> and so I feel like there's got to be, you know, at the very least, bring the entire, you know, village to raise the child kind of situation. Because we use that phrase, but I like, seriously, if, you know, if you don't want motherhood and fatherhood to be a you know I don't want to say life sentence because that sounds so negative <laughs> but if you don't want them to be instantly in charge of this new life that is you know trembling and squalling and unable to do anything um, there has to be someone else that will rear them or some other people in, as a group and so it's interesting to think of groups of people raising a child rather than a nuclear you know two two person parentage and one thing i kind of think of too with that is even if you have that two person parentage it's interesting to me how we default to that being very solitary and independent yes and, Whereas, and don't tell me how to raise my child <laughs> you know but that i mean i th i think you can poke around in a lot of different historical cultures um and also like use your imagination mm -hmm. that an entire community could be supporting these people in different ways than just well here you go here's your kid now don't kill it uh good <laughs> luck we'll see you in 18 years keep it off my lawn you know <laughs> and the fact that you know again we are we're working with fantasy so a lot of the um kind of restrictions that have been, you know, on people historically, like, you know, you, you couldn't, we didn't have formula for a long time. You have to have someone lactating to feed a baby, but that's, you know, what, that doesn't have to be how it works in a fantasy world. If you have like the special breast milk legume, yeah, or right. I think as Rika, as Rika suggested, you could have like <laughs> oh, the lactating <laughs> dragon, the lactating wet nurse, wet nurse dragon. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> why, why are all dragons violent, you know, virgin killers? Some of them yeah. may raise them to be of uh, <laughs> dragon enticing age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just when you're when you're trying to break away from the assumptions, like really just think of the most out there idea that you can and then find somewhere in between that feels like it fits your world. Yeah. Or out there it might be like perfect. Or, yeah. I mean, all the way on the outside and then keep going and then keep going. Speaking of breaking with assumptions, I think another major assumption to play with in terms of um, family is marriage. Yes. yes. Do you yes. even have marriage to begin with? First off is so, one assumption to play with. But a, a really good thing to think about here is what is the purpose that marriage is serving in the yes. society, society that you're building? building. Mm -hmm. Is it a way to legitimize the children that you're having? because of inheritance laws or something? Is it to join two families together politically? Is it for just out of like to to officialize a romantic relationship that two people share? Like what are some of the other reasons that people like might get straight up economic? <laughs> Yeah. Straight up economic, yep, for sure. If there's tax benefits before there's a religious reason to get married. <laughs> yes, yes. But, insurance. Um, it was straight up insurance. <laughs> you mentioned the to legitimize the children, which of course assumes a patriarchy because yeah. you don't need to legitimize children if it's a matriarchy and the exactly. inheritance passes through the mother. So you could even have a ceremony for adoption that's more important than a ceremony for marriage. That's pretty good. That is good. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many little presumptions that can be interrogated 
in the concept of marriage itself if they it presumes marriage or romance or sex or children or any of that as part of what marriage means and how weird or mm-hmm. strange can you make the concept of marriage or any form of family binding ritual that brings two or more people together into a legal unit i believe I- I think I believe Alex has an in my book. I do have I do have an in my book, but I'm also thinking of I think it's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by I want to say Heinlein, which had some really cool is, yep. marriage and family structures in it, uh, including like a chain marriage where two people would get married and then they'd marry a third person and then that person would marry someone else and that person would marry someone else sort of like as bad email right, strings. And so you, yeah, like email <laughs> strings. So like you have this marriage that has lasted like 120 years because the people in the chain marriage just keep like marrying someone like a couple years younger than them. They keep bringing uh, in new and people. And that was, that was cool and weird. Uh, but anyway, back to in my book. <laughs> uh, yeah, in uh, A Conspiracy of Truths, I play around with marriage a little bit because this culture has some weird tax benefits and uh, economic stuff going on. And uh, the more people that are in a marriage, like the easier their taxes are, or like the more that they can split taxes between them. And it's just cheaper to be diversify, diversify, right. And to have like five people uh, in your, your marriage uh, and then all of the children together. Uh, I did this a little bit in my current work in progress as well, um, but that's going back to sort of what Rekha said about uh, matriarchy and how you don't need to be, you don't need to have marriage to legitimize children if it's primarily a matriarchy, Uh, but it's too complicated to explain on air right now, and I've already (laughs) talked a lot. (laughs) Though you did bring up a good thing that all world builders out there should pay attention to, Taxes can be a key reason behind so many world-building elements. There are so many weird cultural things in our world that have their roots back to the taxes. Yeah. (laughs) And tax law can be so convoluted on its own, you can pretty much explain away anything you want. One of my favorites is apparently how in Italy they tax building based on how many floors they have. So that's why they have so many different terms for like mezzanine and other parts of the house. So they can say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not another floor. That's a mezzanine. You can't tax us for that. Ah. ah. (laughs) That's amazing. I was thinking of a sprawling one-story villa. Yes, Yes. exactly. Yes. Do you guys also have some in my book moments? I I have an in my book for marriage. It's actually, it's a little um, side note. It's not the main culture. Um, that comes um, into the second and third books, um, but it's a, kind of a culture that um, the main characters engage with. It's actually polyandrous, mm. so women have more than one husband. Um, and what kind of comes into this is actually the relationship between the siblings, that the siblings, there will be like one man who's kind of like more like the first husband or like the more elevated socially or politically or whatever, and they're kind of like the favored children, mm. and so they're more politically able to um, like edge out um, others um, but those second husband or third husband siblings are still part of the family so it's just kind of like political network that ends up happening um, with that as well as as the family network um, just because of this extended sibling relationship web well in my book 
Um, <laughs> well done. I have a couple of different cultures. I thought about singing it, but um, I wasn't sure if I, I could get there tonight. That's fair. Um, That's very fair. Maybe later. Maybe later. <laughs> maybe later. Um, I have a couple of different cultures, and I made sure that I treated their societies in a w- and their um, the relationships that they build and the way that they value um, marriage or not in different ways based on their lifestyles. And um, so some of it is going to be um, geography. Um, some of it is like the space that they exist in. So I have half of my, my planet is basically um, overrun, I'll say, by this um, this these children of the one god, uh, Silas Cutter, and his children all sort of have wanderlust. So they are all out there on airships, and they have colony ships. So there are ships that are just communities, and they all live on one ship. And then the ships dock to get supplies, and they dock to um, get water, or they just meet up with another ship, and they have a big party. And this is when suddenly, nine months later, or whatever the gestation period of my um, cutter people is, uh, then you have these children, and nobody cares who the father is, except that's at that level of society. Then you have the imperial level of society, where suddenly we do care very much about heraldry and and bloodlines mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. And then you have um, others who they settle down and they start a farm and so they pair off in or you know quadruple off whatever they want to do but they're going to do it and kind of stick close to each other and they'll know who is probably a sire of a child versus um you know the colony ships where it's like well me and my aunts and my eight cousins all grew up together and nobody knows who any of the fathers are probably so um so that's and that's just one you know, quote unquote culture that's got the different levels of society. And I think it's important to note that like rich versus poor or um, depending on how you live your life and and how you interact with the rest of the world and the economy is also going to influence how you feel about marriage. You know, there are people who are like, he's a doctor, honey, you know, and then there are people like, oh, he's cute. And then there are people like, this is my best friend and I'm going to stay with him forever. You know, absolutely, um, and that's just one one plus one matches. So then I have another set of um, people on another part of the world they're all subterranean so they've got compressed living Mm. space and their families tend to be small as a result of living in caves and they don't want to go see the stars and build skyscrapers and expand so they keep everything pretty compact but they also are very um, interested in business partnerships so your marriage contract comes with a basically the prenup is the whole marriage contract you know like if you know, if anything should go wrong, here's how much of the business that we are about to engage on together um, we are going to split and, and things like that. So it's very romantic. Yeah. Um, lots of lots of dollar signs if they had dollar signs, whatever their denominator and is. And when you're building uh, social norms like this, I think it's also really important to remember that not everybody, even within your society, is always going to have the same opinions about whether this is the right way to do things whether this is something that they want to engage in you know everyone is going to face this and kind of have their own individual reaction to it um even if they are they personally are fine with it and want to go along with it they're still going to have an individual unique reaction to it um so just be careful that you're not 
kind of stereotyping your own cultures and making everyone in it have all the same opinions about everything. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, not. Definitely. Yeah. Well, that was like a major thing for me in writing Torn was that I had written um, a society that had kind of like old school English coverture laws that once you get married as a woman, your shit becomes your husband's. Mm. And so mm. since I have a protagonist who had built a business, she says, oh, I'm not going to get married then because I don't want him to have my business. Um, and I'm also not going to risk, you know, any kind of affair because I don't want kids because that is a challenge I cannot keep up with with my business. And so she's kind of shocked to come in contact with um, people who are much wealthier for whom premarital affairs are totally normal because they're like, yeah, hey, if uh, we get knocked up, it checks out, we get married, we really want this whole like inheritance thing to keep going. This is important to us with titles and this kind of patriarchal, you know, system of inheritance and hierarchy and, and titling. So yeah, if we can, you know, have a baby out of wedlock, that's fine because we can, you know, recognize that we're fertile and that's a good thing mm, so mm, it's like mm, even within the stratus of society like how does it impact what you personally want out of how society doles out your cards to you that was one of the things in the song of ice and fire books that fascinated me that they so normalized the concept of bastardry that they had a whole designated system of how you yeah. named people yes. mm -hmm. who are bastards your bastard name was your zip code yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> I mean, we used to kind of have something like that, right? Like with the prefix uh, fits, wasn't that originally mm -hmm. used for yes. bastards? Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Which in this, I, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead in our, our, our dot points a bit, but the concept of like, are you choosing to have kids or not, mm. I think becomes mm. a really interesting question in fantasy, right? Because you have more variables that you can play with with that. Yes. Where is all of the fantasy birth control, honestly? Like, for real. Like, for people real. just sort of like, oh, yes, no one had birth control pre, like, 1960. Uh, and that is just, like, provably not true. Yeah. Yes. Well, and even just the concept that people didn't know how fertility worked. Yeah. Like, yeah. people, people, people knew. People knew. People um, knew. So, I was reading just recently... Did I talk about this in a previous episode? I can't remember. I don't know. Tell us again. But there is a culture in the Pacific Islands where because there's a chemical in their local yams that is a natural birth controlling hormone chemical. Mm. In fact, those yams were what scientists studied to come up with the birth control pills. Interesting. But because of that, they had no sense of connection between sex and pregnancy. Because for them... Weird! Tell me everything! They're having sex all the time. <laughs> that's like... That's like how you say hi in their culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, for them having a meal together, that's some serious business. That's when you invite somebody for dinner, that's when you know that a relationship is getting serious. But because they never saw sex as a connection to pregnancy they just you just get pregnant when you get pregnant yeah when or there's a yam famine for example when there was a yam famine <laughs> <laughs> but they never connected the two things of one leading to the other that's fascinating and thus no sense of fatherhood beyond the this is the person that i live with who and share responsibilities with thus he's the father of my children that's 
you have not mentioned that before because I would remember that is fascinating. No. Yes, what? having just caught up on all your episodes <laughs> yes. to make sure I didn't uh, suggest anything that was counter to the world you were building, I can say that while I see the inspiration for your anti-birth control vegetation on, on your continent, um, you did not mention that one. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. That is fascinating. So let's talk a little bit more about like bloodlines and and parentage. Does ever anyone have any strong feelings that they want to just start ranting about right now? It's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bloodlines and parentage thing. It's it's weird because it go, sort of goes two ways. You have one thing that's like selective breeding, and then you have another thing that's like um, purebredness. And yeah. Um, it's, pedigrees. yeah, pedigrees, but also like the health issues that rise as a result of that, which are sort of, um, you know, have been overdone or at least in, you know, to to the point where everyone knows what I'm talking about in fantasy, um, you know, the, the Targaryens being like one of the um, obvious examples yeah. of that. Or the Habsburgs and- in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there are yeah. real life examples. <laughs> I'm just uh, I, was, I was keeping it to fantasy. I didn't want to name names. Um, I don't think we really need to worry about like offending the Habsburgs. <laughs> you never know. I I don't you know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. We're gonna get our first angry letter. So I assume nothing. You know. Um, like, if anything is punching up, <laughs> it's probably making fun of the Habsburgs. <laughs> Fair. Okay. But um, the, the idea of bloodlines and the idea of, um, you know, inheritance, you sort of get. Because you work hard and you don't want it to go to just anybody. And I think that's an instinct that a lot of cultures might uh, default to but you can also ask mm-hmm. that you know like is your um, entire continent or civilization or you know city full of philanthropists who upon their death all their wealth goes to the entire city you know back into the system for the greater good or for evil whatever you know um, these are things that you can you can interrogate when you make these you know choices um, versus presumptions and Mm-hmm. the the bloodlines thing just feels so icky anyway um and all the implications that come from that and not only like um within a family unit but then you start to get into racial stuff too so i hate it it's all bullshit yeah yeah <laughs> well i think it's one of those things that you know if you're gonna do it in a fantasy world it's, it's not something you can't do it you can't write something fresh in a fantasy world that deals with you know familial bloodlines but i think you have to recognize am I just defaulting to this because mm-hmm. I'm I'm writing the same thing that's been written a lot of times or am I really interrogating it and saying well why does this work in my fantasy world why is it that I'm grappling with it and am I going to grapple with it and am I going to play with elements of it that are ickier or am I just going to kind of roll with it and is it all because tax code because yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you do include the icky stuff and interrogate it in your works, um, you can you can make some commentary on it, even if you like would prefer it didn't exist. Like if you include it, you can examine why you don't like it right. in your story. Whereas if you try to pretend it doesn't exist, then you don't really get a chance to comment on it unless your avoidance of it is specifically leaving a very it shaped hole in your story. 
So so here's another dot point that we have. Uh, it's very mysterious, and I need to hear more about it. Quote, Rowena can go off. Ask about colonial New England. <laughs> so, Unquote. Well, we Rowena, talking, could Rowena, you tell us what about is <laughs> What is this, Rowena? Talking about um, bloodlines and specifically kind of hanging back to the concept of whether or not people choose to get pregnant or not. Um, mm. When they, obviously, when you think colonial New England, you're thinking like, you know, Puritan, very, very strict Protestant colonists who are here for, you know, very religious reasons, strict, no sense of humor. Clearly, they're all waiting <laughs> till they get married to doink, right? Well, well, no. And it turns out they're looking at, um, there was a study that looked at um, birth records compared to marriage records, and over 50% mm. of couples were knocked up when they got married. So at first, the response to this was just kind of like a, well, haha, people doink like bunnies, no matter what their background is. But then people dug into a little bit more. And um, it was probably a strategy. Because to get married, you had to get your parents to agree to slice off some of their land for you. And they could delay that for a long time. It's like, no, no, we're going to wait till you're older. We're going to wait until this wheat harvest is better. And if you're kind of chafing at the bit and remembering that most of these people weren't getting married until their mid to late 20s anyway. So you're like a full-fledged mm. adult. And if you've um, been engaged to this person, they maybe even moved into your house with you. Um, women mm. would often move into the the um, the husband-to-be's um, family's home. So you're kind of like, get on with it already. So the, the prevailing hypothesis now is that they were, they knew enough about their own fertility that they were getting knocked up on purpose in order to leverage this kind of family dynamic oh. um, and oh, play it to their advantage. So yes, doinking and family making as means of economic gain. Colonial New England. Ta You're taxes. welcome. <laughs> taxes and land. It all comes back down. <laughs> I honestly was not expecting us to talk about taxes so much in an episode about uh, world building families, but it, it here we are. It kind of makes sense. After, after doing taxes for a family, yeah. it makes sense. One thing I feel like yeah. we can dive into talking about, especially in the context of fantasy and sci-fi, is choosing your family. And I don't mean you as the author choosing your family, but how do people choose a family that isn't their blood family? And I feel like Rekka would be the person to like mm. punt this to because she's got like whole books of chosen found families. <laughs> well, as I said, you can pick your nose and you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family and you can't pick your friend's nose, but like th that might, you can interrogate that too. But so, you know, I think a lot of us, <laughs> I'm sorry, Marshall. <laughs> we broke, we, we, we broke Marshall, everyone. <laughs> no, no, I just, I just only thought of once you have children, sometimes then you have to pick your family's nose. <laughs> you have this to pick is, your family's nose if you if you go with your blood family. Um, no, but like I think a lot of us have or know someone who has the experience of just like your blood family being complete shit. You know, mm -hmm. having yeah. having a relationship with people does not mean based on the you know gunk flowing through your veins is not a surefire way to make sure that you get along well with them. In fact, you know, some people could say that you were raised by these people to become these people and therefore you cannot stand these people because you are turning into those people. Um, that's one theory. Uh, so we have chosen families and I think most people have experienced or currently have the experience of a chosen family, the people that they surround themselves with because these are the people that they feel like they belong to more than they might feel like the 
they feel belonging to their blood family and those are my favorite families um and it doesn't mean that it has to exclude your blood family but that is not a criteria upon which any of this is based necessarily like you may have a shared experience with a sibling of like say an abusive parent or caregiver and then that bonds you based on your mutual experience more than the fact that you happen to be that person's sibling so if you go somewhere where you are one of many who have this shared experience say an orphanage or a home or you know foster care or something like that you might bond with other people based on the fact that you all have that shared experience and now the fact that you are siblings with this other person just means that you've got a little bit more history together than you might have in this new location um but i want to say like jump in before i can be corrected and correct myself is that like when you transplant one criteria that you have in common is not necessarily enough to create a found family um but if you find yourself in a situation um, as in my book, um, you know, (laughs) there are five people on a ship together. So these people are going to be in each other's way. Um, You know, they're going to share in the um, profits of what they're doing. They're going to um, make decisions together as a team of, you know, what they want to do when they run into trouble, Um, you know, give, you know, they're going to contribute ideas to um, how to get out of trouble, things like this. And if they're working towards a common goal, then that brings them closer together. Um, Trouble from the outside will bring them closer together. And so the criteria that I sort of see as um, building a family, whether it's blood or community or, you know, chosen found family, is um, that these people provide some safety and stability in your life. Um, that this all goes sort of back to like, are you a prey animal? And do you feel like you can close your eyes at night? (laughs) You know, so safety and stability of the people around you that, you know, they've got your back um, or the presence of multiple people in a group is going to discourage predators, you know, like I'm I'm going back to the bunnies here, but, you know, just like the whole um, prey response, the fight or flight, you know, like do these people calm your vagus nerve reaction to the point where you can sleep at night and and laugh and enjoy life and and get some pleasure out of it um and going back to what we were saying before like support for um people in the community of whatever size whether that person's a baby whether that person needs education whether that person is an adult and needs a sexual relationship or romantic relationship or just really close friendship relationships and then people who are moving into old age and then um, I didn't put it in the bullets but of course then there are people with disability that might need support from their community as well Um, Mm -hmm. and then just companionship Um, you know do you get along with these people um Typically, there's a difference between like just disliking someone and, you know, the playful banter or the kind of sarcasm, the, you know, kind of like um, we can disagree and we can have a conversation about how we disagree, but we're still like working together at the end of it. Um, I think like there's a lot of nuance to being friends, I think. And I love I love exploring that in, in writing. Um, and then, as I was saying before, like feeling like you belong to this community is so important. Like if you feel like you're the odd one out, you're 
not probably feeling any better with them that you might with a family you didn't choose but was chosen for you by your birth or your lineage or other people around you. Um, and then there's, you know, we've talked about it a lot, the, the idea of a continuity or legacy um, in a, you know, patriarchal bloodline inheritance-based um, family that's, you know, a set rule that we're already familiar with. But like, how else can you play with that? Like, you know, is this a business partner that you're going to hand over your business to? Um, are these, you know, is this a co-op of people who work together on stuff and whoever is in the co-op, you know, just always owns it. So as long as there's two people, then it continues kind of thing. Um, so those are just sort of like my thoughts on how you might shape a family when you aren't trying to make this about, you know, mom and dad and sister and brother and maybe grandma who's about to probably pass away in the other room or something like that. Poor <laughs> also, often the central cast of whatever story you're telling is going to either start as or evolve into one of these chosen families. Mm -hmm. Firefly is a classic example. These people mm -hmm. who all live together in a lot of ways yeah. don't like each other, but they still respond to each other as family there's the bit where one of them says to the captain yep. why did you come back for me you're on my crew why are we still talking about this that's a perfect example the other one that jumps to mind is the the fast and furious <laughs> movies which fascinate me because of the way they've evolved over time but the big theme that they've evolved with is that of mm -hmm. la familia all these guys working together who are now a family i mean they're really not and half the time they're trying to kill each other but you know, you are not the first person to tell me that The Fast and the Furious is all about found family. I've never seen a Fast and Furious movie. But, like, the more I hear about it, the more I think that maybe I should. <laughs> They're an experience. They're an experience, especially yeah. in that they <laughs> yes. have gone through this weird evolution over time. The first one is essentially a Point Break remake about stealing DVD yep. players and racing cars. And yeah, they were spies for the government. Um, you know, are they going into space? Maybe, <laughs> you know. It's a movie series where if in the next one, it's, okay. you know, we've got right, spaceships right. or we've got a time machine, you would just be like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> you would not be surprised if you'd watch them all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of the people I know who are into the Fast and the Furious movies, the first conversation that always happens when they meet someone else who also likes those movies is, okay, what order? And they, and they rank <laughs> the, you know, which ones are watchable, but also like their favorite ones. So one thing that I think is really interesting um, when thinking about um, any family, but especially found family is not just the sense of belonging, but the sense of identity that comes from that. Like what role do you fill within that group of people and how that can be vastly different from a role that you might fill or a character might fill um, within a bloodline family. Um, so I think that could be kind of a fun place to play with, you know, character and what their motivations are is who am I to these people who are so important to me and who am I to them? And I think that that can get played with in like really dynamic and interesting ways compared to mother, father, sister, brother, parent, child relationships. Like it can get really nuanced and really fun and interesting to, to goof around with. And more nuanced, um, generally speaking, unless your found family is a heist team um, that, mm -hmm. you know, than having the hacker one, the, you know, the, the one that like right. passes for celebrities, you know, like stuff like that. But I mean, it's funny because when I assembled a 
team of characters, I had an editor say, oh, these, these characters are superfluous. And um, I'm thinking, like, if it had been a royal family, you know, the superfluous sisters or whatever would not have been like, oh, we should probably get rid of those. It would have been like, oh, so what are they doing? You know, like, um, again, like, there's this validity to saying that all these people are related by blood that, um, you know, we tend to discount when, like, two people on a team might have a similar skill. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, absolutely. And that was actually when I was um, doing some revisions on my second book, my editor was like, I really want to know what's like going on with this person's brothers. Like you mentioned them, like that needs to be developed more. And it was a great suggestion. It was absolutely true. It it enriched the book and the third book. But like you say, I don't think that it would have been suggested had it been just like these are a couple mm-hmm. friends he has. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was brothers, like we needed to know what they were doing and, and how what they did impacted this character. So absolutely. Yeah. I had a similar thing with my editor with the constabulary books because there was a brief mention of a backstory with one of the uncles. And because it was like part of the larger family, she's like, so what happened there? Tell me more about that. And that's exactly it. It's entirely because (laughs) it's family rather than this sort of random named character in the background that it's important you mentioned it it means something (laughs) no and i love and i love like the found family um element that you were talking about Rekka, about kind of like Mm. like stability and survival in a way um and i think that it was funny because i was i was while prepping for this episode i was also rearranging my bookshelves and i happened to come across my charles dickens which charles dickens is not my favorite writer um but the only book that i really like by charles dickens is hard times and i kind of realized like we talk all about found families as though this concept is something that was like our generation has really started playing with in in fiction and um, to a greater degree than previous. And that's probably true, but I realized Dickens really played the found family thing because the major um, group of kind of good guys in hard times is the circus. Mm-hmm. Like these people who are outcasts from the rest of society, mm-hmm. but they're acrobats on horses. And so they have this thing in common and this is how they band together and kind of survive in the face of a culture that really doesn't like them very much. And so it was kind of a fun, especially because the, the like traditional patriarchal family in the book are, they're just dicks. They're horrible. <laughs> so it's this contrast between this like real quote unquote family who are dicks and a found family who it's a real family. It's a real family that's supportive and, and holding each other up. And I just was like, wow, wow, Dickens. Okay. You, you earned some props <laughs> back from me because you've never been my favorite, but the circus family makes me happy. <laughs> I haven't read that one, but, um, that, you know, add to that. I don't know if it's in the book, but like, if it's a circus, then they're all running a business together too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The one pitfall and I've seen this a lot when I've read Slash or read for workshops, is you can tell when an author has crafted a found family in their head and all these... There's all these interactions and dynamics that you know the author knows that are not coming out there on the page because they've worked out the whole found family thing one way or another. (laughs) Yeah. But it's certainly a thing to be aware of when you're writing your found families that have all these particular dynamics and interactions that you do do the character work that shows these things 
on the page rather than keep it in your head. Though I can certainly rant about beginning writers who have so much more of the character dynamics in their head than is showing up on the page. And that happens the most with found family dynamics. Yeah. yeah. I think that we ended up, like, we're getting to the end of the episode now. And I think that um, pretty much as is classic, like, Rowena uh, was talking about how an editor you know, asked her to, to put in more information about this other character because, ooh, family. And I think that kind of happened on this episode, too. We kind of got distracted talking about, like, characters and, and <laughs> dynamics rather than actually world-building anything, um, which is fascinating and I think pretty appropriate. Um, but it was a, a good conversation. Um, shall we end the episode with uh, Rekka's bit of trivia? Sure. Yes. I cannot wait well, to hear right. Rekka's bit of trivia. Is it, was I so, doing trivia? I thought I was contributing. Yes. She's yes. contributing. So, yes. Yeah, world, world yeah. building, our, our world trivia that you have created. So basically, uh, if anyone is new to the podcast, uh, every time we have a guest star, we ask them to come up with a bit of trivia or a contribution to the world building of the world. It doesn't necessarily have to be family related, Rekka. Uh, you could do whatever you want. Do you have something cool for us? I do. I do. I All started, right. um, I didn't realize, I just uh, listened to your back episodes and heard uh, Jen Lyons episode and I realized, oh, it doesn't have to be related to the topic. So I got very excited. Yeah, absolutely not. So yes. what I've brought for you, I don't want to name it because you've got so many cultures and they're probably each going to have their own name for it. So okay. um, I want to let you keep the naming system um, within your Conlang conventions. But um, in a recent episode about magic, you talked about the magic being from the environment and um, that it might be from radiation and that you'd have uh, different concentrations of it um, per region and people would interact with it in different ways. So what I thought uh, might be interesting is to give you a fossil that is especially okay. good at holding the type of magical radiation that you discussed. So it can be set into jewelry. It can be laid into weapons. It can, you know, you can it, interact with it however you want. Um, so this is a trace fossil and it can be found in a variety of patterns and colors, a lot like agate. Um, because it's a fossil, if you like, it can contain a special ancient magic related to the radiation at the time that it Ooh. fossilized um and if you like it might not be found in the current living environments so that th these might be sought after and therefore you could have a black market trade you could have you know um fraudulent pieces that are actually just common agate jaspers or chelsydney those kinds of things that'll look similar um the idea being that like anytime you freeze a stone to where you could carbon date it you might also have like a different magical signature so that was sort of what i thought um do you want to take a guess at, at what kind of trace fossil i'm talking about it's coprolite I... it's poop oh, that's just for you guys <laughs> well thanks Rekka. you're welcome <laughs> Rekka gave a sh Rekka, you guys Rekka gave a shit I sure did. Oh. <laughs> I'm back on my dino shit. Yep. <laughs> but but it does have a certain ancient magic trapped in mm -hmm. amber kind of feel. But to poop. It. Yes, except it. it's literally dragon it. poop. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's for you guys. Thank you, Rekka. Love you. Thank you. I love you too. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us as well. Uh, listeners, if you want to go check out Rekka's books, uh, she publishes under RJ Theodore. Uh, her books are fantastic. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Thanks again to Rekka, aka RJ Theodore, for joining us and telling us all about the amazing family structures in her books. Seriously, she writes so good and you should buy her work. Remember, the big moral of this episode is that you can do any old shit with your family-related world building if you say that it's for tax purposes. Anyway, our next episode goes up on October 30th. Since that's our Halloween episode, we'll be talking about death-related world building. Ooh, spooky! We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at worldbuildcast. Our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. And we also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. Some cultures have just one word to mean niece and nephew. Other cultures have completely different words to distinguish an aunt or uncle on your mother's side versus an aunt and uncle or your, on your father's side. How complicated do you want to get? Remember, taxes.